Every week we go to the scriptures. Why do we do this? It's because there we see that uh, the person and work of Christ is most clearly revealed. Our sermon this week will be from 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 21. Uh, but first, pr uh, please pray with me. Lord, you spoke and all things were created. You have spoken to us in your word. And so may we posture our hearts, ready to hear, listen, and obey. Lord, teach us this morning. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 John chapter 5. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this, and this life is in his son. For whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we, know that we if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the, lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Peace be with you. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, um, it's wonderful to see you this morning. It's a joy to be with you this morning, really. This has been a heavy week for us uh, at Sojourn. As many of you know, last week at a members meeting, we announced that we are parting ways with our pastor, Brandon Barker. It wasn't because of a doctrinal disagreement or a moral failure, which I'm very glad to say, but that in itself uh, has made it even harder in some ways. 
We love Brandon and Brandon loves us. Um, I think, I understand he's planning to be with us actually at the end of the gathering today to share a few words with us. If you have any questions about this, our elders are available to talk to you. If you're not connected with a parish, um, then my email is on the website. Um, if you are connected to a parish, the best way to get in touch with one of us is to talk with your parish leaders. who will put you directly in touch with an elder. As we've been processing through this difficult news, I've also been studying to preach this closing sermon in what has been a three month long series through the book of 1 John. We've looked at a lot of things over the course of these three months. We've looked at what it means to be in fellowship with God. We've looked at what it means to love the truth, to have peace with God and one another, to be a people who love God and one another. We've looked at who Jesus is, what he came to do for us, what it means for our life together as the church and our life in the world. We've been walking through all of these wonderful things. And as we shared last Sunday night, we also have been simultaneously wrestling with the realities and complexities of life in a fallen world. We've had a front row seat to the fact that even with the grace of God, even with the presence of the Holy Spirit guiding and encouraging and weaving the truth of the gospel more and more fully into our hearts and into our life together as a community, life still gets messy sometimes. The encouragement to love one another is not always easy to heed or to experience. The peace that we celebrate and remember isn't always easy to enjoy. The repentance that we invite one another towards doesn't get easier to engage in. The thing is, though, as you consider the context of the Bible, you realize that none, this is nothing new. Not only that, but it was into situations like this that much of the Bible was written. What is the law of Moses if not bringing order to the chaos of a people wandering in the wilderness? What are the prophets if not bringing God's word of correction to a people who have gone astray? What are the gospels, if not telling the story of a God who sent his son into a broken world to redeem it of sin and death, to bring light where there is darkness, life in the place of death? And what are the letters of the apostles, if not bringing encouragement and clarity to churches experiencing persecution, division, confusion, and hardship? First John is no exception. As John is writing this letter, there was this seismic shift taking place in the kingdom of God as the kingdom expanded beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. And in the midst of this shift, the early Christians were facing persecution from without and division from within. There are those who had forsaken belief in Jesus and were actively trying to lead others astray. They were struggling to know what to think, who to turn to, how to live, what it looked like to be loving to one another in a season like this. Life in these early churches was anything but calm and quiet and peaceful, but God was moving. His spirit was working. And as John writes this letter into a moment of confusion and division and uncertainty in the early church with an eye to bringing clarity and truth and giving people a picture of life with God and life with one another that they could pursue together. John is reminding them that in the midst of their strife, God remains good. Jesus remains beautiful and the gospel remains the power. 
of salvation unto life. We should never celebrate crisis, conflict, and pain. We should never minimize it as if saying, well, that's inevitable, so it's not that big of a deal. But we should be encouraged that when these things happen, there's great comfort in knowing that God is the God of the real world. Meaning that rather than waiting until we get everything right on our end, God is engaging with us profoundly, tangibly, literally in the midst of every situation in which we find ourselves. Guiding us, protecting us, comforting us, caring for us, his children. So we should never celebrate crisis, conflict, and pain. But we should remember that over and over and over again, God has proven faithful to draw near to his people, to draw near to them in crisis, to answer prayers for mercy and grace in conflict, and to bring comfort and healing and encouragement to those who are in pain. And so as we come to the end of the book of 1 John, to the passage that you just heard Matt read, we come to some concluding thoughts that John wants to give to these early churches that find themselves in the midst of division and confusion. And I think that in the moment in which we find ourselves, John's words will echo quite loudly. If you're familiar with the book of 1 John already, you'll probably notice that as Matt read, John has touched on a bunch of subjects that if I were to go line by line through this passage, we would be here for a very long time. So instead, what I wanna do is walk through this passage and point out three main things for us. So let's begin at the beginning with the first thing. Look with me at verses six through 13. Let me read. John writes this, he says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And then verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This last verse that I just read, verse 13, is where I want to start this morning. In verse 13, John tells us why he's written this letter. He says, I've, I write these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. To those of you who believe in the Son, you may know that you would have eternal life. John's aim in this entire letter is confidence. He wants these churches in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of division, in the midst of confusion to have certainty that they have life. John is aware of life in the real world. He is aware that when those who have come to know Jesus engage with life in the real world, the wonderful truths of the gospel that they cling to dearly, they invite questions and debate. The things pertaining to faith, the truths contained in the gospel, these things will come and meet with conflict when they come to bear in 
life in the real world. We see this right, right away at the beginning of our passage, verse 6. John is coming out of this wonderful passage that Dodds preached on last week where John says that we have victory in Jesus. This is the victory that has overcome the world, faith in Jesus. And immediately coming out of this incredible statement, John engages with the controversy that that creates. He writes in verse 6, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Now, what is going on here? This is a notoriously complex passage, one of several in this passage to understand. John goes from talking about victory to talking about water and blood with a special emphasis on blood. Jesus came not by water only, but also by the blood. John focuses in, in this passage on two key events in the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus. When Jesus came, he was baptized at the beginning of his ministry and he was crucified at the end of his ministry. The ministry of Jesus was bookended by two baptisms. That one at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus went to the river Jordan to be baptized by John the Baptist, John the baptizer. And as he was baptized in the water, the Holy Spirit descended upon him and spoke words of affirmation. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So you have water and spirit present at Jesus's baptism when he begins his ministry. And then if you fast forward to the end of Jesus's ministry, where Jesus describes his upcoming crucifixion, there's this scene recorded in Mark chapter 10, when the disciples, James and John, John, who is the author of this letter, these two disciples come up to Jesus and ask him to save seats for them in glory. They ask Jesus, grant us one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Grant us to sit there. Jesus' response to them was this. He said, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus' ministry is bookended by these two baptisms. The first is associated with water and the spirit. And the second is associated with water, the spirit, and blood. If you go back to the story of Genesis, if you're familiar with the Bible, it's the first book of the Bible that tells of the creation of the world. God, when he created the heavens and the earth, was preparing to shape it and fill it with life. And then we're told that just before the six days of creation began, the earth was formless and void, and the spirit was hovering over the waters. Creation emerged by water and spirit. But that was the old creation. The purpose of Jesus' ministry was enter into that creation by water and spirit, and then to usher in the new creation, which emerges by water and spirit and blood. In the Gospel of John, chapter 19, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, we read verse 30, Jesus said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Then just after he dies, verse 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Again, the spirit is there, but this time we have water and blood. As the son of God is crucified. So from the perspective of a first century Jew, the idea of the Messiah being born of water and spirit sounds great. 
Water baptism, the spirit descending, the father speaking words of blessing from the heavens. This was all very much compatible with the Jewish anticipation and expectation of the Messiah. The cross was very different. On the cross, there was no descending spirit. The skies were dark and silent. Jesus groans in anguish, forsaken by the father who had blessed him in the beginning. This was not at all compatible with the Jewish anticipation for the Messiah. Water and spirit, yes. Water, spirit, and blood, no. You see, John is proclaiming the gospel of a bloody, crucified Messiah. And that was utterly scandalous. In the words of the Apostle Paul, this was a great stumbling block for the Jews. We've spoken a number of times over the past few months as we've gone through this letter about the secessionists, those who had for a time remained in the community of the churches of the apostles, but who had left the community and had begun teaching differently about who Jesus was and what he came to do. These secessionists likely submitted to water baptism. They would have probably gone out to John to be baptized by him in the wilderness. And the continuation of that baptizing ministry wouldn't have been concerning to them. What they did turn away from was Jesus's sacrificial bloody death, atoning for their sins. But there's no way of getting around the blood. Blood is essential to the gospel. Blood is the means by which God atoned for our sins. Without blood, the good news is no longer good news. And so John emphasizes, right after proclaiming the victory in Jesus and these secessionists are saying, yes, victory in the spirit, life of walking in the spirit with the blessing of God. John says, mm -mm. Jesus came with the spirit and he came with the water and the blood. As John tells us in verse nine, this is the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. In the next few verses, John brings us into this courtroom where John calls forward his witnesses. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament emphasize that testimony needs to be verified by the consonants, by the agreement of two or three witnesses. Here, there are three witnesses. John gives the spirit, the water, and the blood, and they all witness in agreement to who Jesus is and what he came to do. Jesus is the son of God who was sent by his father to come and give his life so that humanity could once again have access to the eternal life for which we were created. The, the abundant eternal life that hasn't been experienced by humanity since the Garden of Eden. See, there are many who claim to be enlightened. There are many who claim to have stumbled on some new teaching that is the true way to the good life, the life without pain, the life of satisfaction, of joy, of legacy. The story of human history is that life has been hard for a very long time. And over the course of history, countless people have come forward with enlightened perspectives on how to ease the plight of the human condition. In every age, in every culture, there is a shared understanding that things are not as they should be. And a shared understanding that our communal desire is, is for things to get better, for us to make progress together. And in every age and culture, there are voices of enlightenment saying, we found the answer. This is the way to life. Time and again though, enlightened people die. 
showing that their efforts, despite their best efforts, they are not able to do away with the final enemy, which is death. In the back of our minds, in the bottom of our hearts, we know that death is a reflection of a world that is not as it should be. And these enlightened voices sound like they have recipes for a really fun, fulfilling, satisfied life. But they always end in death. When Jesus dies, it looks to the onlooker like the same thing again. Here was another enlightened one who died. But then he doesn't stay dead. The crucified Savior rises from the dead, sealing victory over the sin that has plagued all of creation and death, which came as a result. And he did this not for his own sake, but for the sake of the many who would believe in him and who would look to him for salvation and redemption. Jesus' death was not accidental. As As though God had somehow miscalculated the risks of sending his son into a world filled with very angry people, but somehow was able to pull off a W with the resurrection. Jesus' death was not accidental. It doesn't say, John doesn't write that Jesus came by water and then departed by blood when he needed to. Instead, John says he came by water and blood. Jesus came with blood on his mind. He came for the sake of being the once and for all blood sacrifice that would atone for the sins of the whole world. Jesus came to die that we might have life in him. Verse 11, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Verse 12, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. This is the overarching point of the entire letter. First John begins in chapter one, verses one and two with eternal life. John says, that which was from beginning, which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. We have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. At the very end, chapter five, verse 20, John ends by writing about eternal life. He says, he is the true God and eternal life. The theme of eternal life runs throughout the letter. The purpose of the letter being written in the first place is so that John's readers might know that they have eternal life. And for John, this eternal life is tied up with a person. God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Rather than some impersonal life force that we get when we believe. Rather than some purely subjective feeling of euphoria when we come to see a knowledge of the truth. John makes it clear that the life that God gives is given with his son. To have the son, to be with the son means to have life. To not have the son means to not have life. The eternal life that John talks about here certainly includes life in the eternity to come. But if you notice, it's a very present experience as far as believers are concerned. Throughout the book of John, eternal life always refers to a present experience. It is something that we have, not something that we will have. Something that we are given in the presence that we, in the present that we live into in the present together. Going from 
for, from simply having a heartbeat to being made alive spiritually and enjoying fellowship with God and with one another in fullness of love. John's readers were likely being buffeted by the false teachers who were saying that they had this new revelation, this new way of experiencing fullness and joy and life that had never been de demonstrated before, a new understanding of Jesus as he had never been un understood before. And John, without mincing words, doubles down on what Jesus himself said. Jesus never said, listen to my words and then get ready because there are gonna be those who come after me who tell you what you really need to know. Jesus never said that. Instead, Jesus said, once you have me, you have life. There's nothing else that you need. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Those were the words of Jesus. And so as you can see, John is giving two clarifiers to this point. Into a world that has been searching desperately for redemption and healing, Jesus Christ has come as the Son of God to bring light and life. And there are two ways that you can veer from the truth. One, if someone comes to you and says anything less than Jesus, fully God, fully human, who died for our sins and rose again to newness of life, to usher in a new creation. If you have someone who says anything less than that, then you do not have the good news of the gospel. Jesus did not come merely with the spirit and water as our good teacher. He came with the spirit and with water and blood as our savior. The second way that you can veer off this is if someone comes to you and says that you need something more than Jesus. If there is some secret hidden knowledge or, or sinless perfection that you need to accomplish in order to fully avail yourself of what Jesus has to offer. You do not need to be waiting for some new teacher to reveal some secret and hidden knowledge that you've never heard. The mystery of who Jesus is was fully disclosed when Jesus arrived. It was a mystery up until his ministry once Jesus lived, died, rose again, and gave uh, his disciples to the world to spread the good news of salvation secured, there was no more mystery. There's nothing that we lack with Jesus. So once you believe, John says, once you believe, you have the testimony in you, he says, and you have life. The testimony of the spirit and the water and the blood gives life in the first place. And this testimony continues as God sustains his church in spirit and sacrament. As the Holy Spirit meets and strengthens us in the sacrament of water baptism. As we celebrate the newness of life through water and the spirit. And in the sacrament of communion. As we remember the price paid for our lives through partaking of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus on our behalf. There are many who have claimed to be enlightened, who claim to have found a better way against which the testimony of God witnessed by the spirit and the water and the blood speak the resounding truth of eternal life available in Christ and in Christ alone. That's the first thing that we see in our passage today. For the second thing, look with me at verses 13 through 17. Starting in verse 13. I'll stop at 15. John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. John's focus 
like I mentioned before, is that uh, we might have confidence. Those who believe in Jesus might have confidence that they know him and they have eternal life. If you have this testimony in yourself, if you believe in Jesus as the son, you may know you have eternal life. And he gives us in verse 14, a practical outworking of this eternal life. This is one of the things that you get along with eternal life. Not only do we have the son enjoying fellowship with the son, but this is the confidence that we have toward the father, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That phrase, having confidence toward the father could also have been translated, having confidence before the father in his presence. So on account of what Christ has done, John is telling us, we now have the ability to come before God, the father, the creator of the universe before whom the prophet Isaiah fell when he saw him and said, woe is me, I'm as good as dead on account of his uncleanness. We have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus so that we can draw near to God's throne with confidence and that we can approach him not as some distant sovereign, but as our heavenly father, as Jesus taught us to pray. He is our heavenly father who is pleased to hear and grant our requests. We've talked about this several times over the past couple of months, as John has hit on this a couple of times. But then look at what John gives as an example of what we should pray for. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. This is a somewhat perplexing part of the passage. I read more on these two verses than I've read over any other two verses in the whole book of 1 John. Here, don't worry, I'm not gonna share all of that I read. But here, what John is doing is that he's amplifying the theme of prayer. He's taking this theme of praying and knowing that God will answer our prayers and he's applying it to the power of prayer specifically to fighting sin the power of prayer in fighting sin. If you see a brother, which refers to a fellow believer, right? If, you, if one of your brother is sinning, a fellow believer is committing a sin, then you should pray for him or her, that God would give him or her life. And God will do it for those who commit sins that don't lead to death. He then clarifies that he's not talking about praying that God would give life to those who commit sins that do lead to death. And so let me make a couple of clarifications. What is going on here? First, Whenever John uses the phrase sin that leads to death, it's relatively clear that John is referring to the outcome of this sin. Here's what I mean. The only other place in the New Testament where this phrase leads to death occurs is in John chapter 11 with the story of Lazarus, the friend of Jesus who is near to death. And Jesus responds to the sickness of his friend Lazarus by saying, this illness does not lead to death. But then, it is clear that Lazarus does die. But that that was not the end of it because Jesus then restored him to life. So in this, the phrase leads to death is clearly referring to the ultimate spiritual death. That is the failure to experience eternal life, which is the privilege of those who believe in the son of God. So sin that leads to death versus not leading to death, leading to death, we're talking about ultimate spiritual death here. 
Second clarification is this. Several commentators point out that when John talks about sin, he's not so much focusing on individual violations of God's law, while those are included, but more so, John is focusing on how sin is opposition and rebellion against God, like the opposition and rebellion of Satan. This larger sense of the word sin makes sense given that in the very next verse, verse 18, John says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Earlier in the letter, John talks about how those who truly know God will live lives of faithful obedience. He also says in chapter one, that he who says he has no sin deceives himself and the truth is not in him. He also says in chapter two that if anyone does sin, we know that we have an advocate in Christ who lived perfectly righteously for us, for our sake. So when understood in these terms, on the one hand, it doesn't seem likely that John is intending us to sort through two different columns, kinds of sins. As though in column A, these are the sins that do lead to death, and column B, these are the sins that don't lead to death. It doesn't seem that that is John's focus here. It also doesn't seem likely that John is holding up a standard of complete perfectionism. That if you sin, you die, and if you don't, you do. If you don't, you don't. Simply, in the words of John Stott, John is expressing the truth, not that the believer can never step into acts of sin, but rather that he or she does not persist in it habitually or live in sin. New birth results in new behavior. Sin and the child of God are incompatible. They may occasionally meet. They cannot live together in harmony, end quote. So what does seem likely, what John, I think, is doing here is that especially taking into account the context into which John is writing, John probably has the sin of these secessionists in mind. They have denied that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh. They have denied the significance of his atoning work for their sins. Thus, they have placed themselves outside the sphere of forgiveness. Their sins have become sins unto death. In other words, there are not two categories of sin. There are two categories of people. In a sense, all sin leads to death. It may not lead to your death, though. Either your sin finds its end in the death of Christ on the cross, or it finds its end in the eternal death of the person committing it. John has been teaching about belief in Jesus as the Son of God and that belief covering our sins through faith in Christ, our sins are covered. And here, John is giving both a word of warning and a word of invitation. Either you believe or you don't. Either you have eternal life or you don't. Either your sins are leading to death or they are not. From that point, when he addresses sin, it comes into focus that if you believe in Jesus, and you have been brought into eternal life, when you slip into sin, it's perfectly appropriate for your brother or sister to pray for you, verse 16, that God will give you life. All sin must be brought to God in Jesus' name, even after you come into eternal life with God. Confession of sin, forgiveness of sin is not something that happens once and for all in your life. There's a first forgiveness that you receive, and then as in an ongoing fashion, this is why John makes a big deal in chapter one about if you, if you sin, confess your sins. This is why we confess our sins as a church every Sunday. 
all sin must be brought to God in Jesus' name, Jesus' name, so that it can be dealt with, so that you can experience life anew and unburdened by the weight of your sin. If you don't believe in Jesus, however, my prayers for you that your sins be forgiven simply because I asked God to would be out of order. Instead of praying for the forgiveness of your sins apart from Christ, my prayer for you should instead be that you would come to know Jesus. Because when you come to know Jesus, that is where your sins will be dealt with. John does not command us not to pray for unbelievers here. He simply says, there's no use praying for the forgiveness of sins for someone who doesn't believe in Jesus. Our prayers instead should be that that person would come to know Jesus because when you come to know Jesus, that is where salvation unto life is to be found. You are still praying for the life of that person as they come to know Jesus. And that's the second thing that I wanted to see John pointing out to us in this passage. The first thing was John focusing on the testimony of God witnessed by the spirit and the water and the blood that eternal life is available in Christ and in Christ alone. And that if you believe, you may know that you have this eternal life that he came to offer. The second thing is like it. Beware the sin that leads to death. Rejection of Jesus. For those who are in Christ, sin and rebellion against God are no longer your governing reality. And when you do sin occasionally, you ought to bring that before your brothers and sisters so that they can pray for you. So you can together come before the throne of God and experience the life and healing and forgiveness that he has to offer. We are assured that if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us and grant our requests Praying for the deliverance of God's children from the penalty of sin and granting them life anew is right in line with the Father's will. It's why he sent Jesus. And so when you pray for that to be applied to your brother or your sister, you can be assured that that is a prayer that God will hear and grant. For the third thing, this is the last thing. Look with me at verse 18. John closes his letter with three we know statements. He says this, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. In these three we know statements, John is reassuring these Christians in the midst of their confusion, in the midst of division, in the midst of uncertainty. He's assuring these Christians of their privileged position in Christ. In the first we know statement, John emphasizes the truth that once you have been born of God, you have been born into a new family You've, given, you've been given a new heart and you no longer are consigned to disobedience, sin, and rebellion. You have the ability to live a life that is pleasing to God. Even when you do not do so perfectly, which you won't, as he has made it clear earlier in his letter, the evil one cannot touch you. 
your brothers and sisters are praying for you and you have a God who is protecting you. In the second we know statement, John emphasizes that this does not lead to a life without peril. The whole world, John says, still lies in the power of the evil one. Even as you experience pain and suffering in this life and in this body, know, John is writing, know that the evil one has no power over you. The evil one has no power over you. He cannot touch the eternal life that God has given you in Christ. John is aware of life in the real world. And so he gives this second reassurance. And then the third we know statement, John gives this wonderful promise, clearly speaking against the false teachers, that true understanding has come from Jesus, the son of God who is true and who verse 20 is both the true God and eternal life. This is the, high, the highest Christological statement in the entire letter. Jesus, up until this point, John has not declared Jesus to be the true God. It has been assumed, especially given how he began his letter. But this is the clearest place where John says, Jesus is the true God in whom we have eternal life. And so I wanna leave us with three points of application. The first point is this, brothers, sisters, and friends, there is a solution to sin and that inoculation will never wear off. There is a solution to sin and that inoculation will never wear off. If you're in here and you're not a Christian, the invitation that John is making clearly here and throughout his writings is come to Jesus. Come and see him and know him and his grace. He is not God sitting in heaven with arms crossed waiting for you to get your life together, to save yourself, to be the solution to your own sins. God is inviting you to come to Jesus because it is only when your sin is fully dealt with, which is only possible in Christ by the blood of Jesus. It is only when your sin is fully dealt with that you can experience the kind of freedom that leads to the fullness of life and love that you are searching for. If you are in Christ, be vigilant because sin is still crouching at your door. The world is still under the power of the evil one who is seeking to wreak havoc in the world and in the church. So be vigilant against sin. But when you do sin, know that you have a God who is patient with you. Know that forgiveness is available to you in Christ today, just like as it was yesterday, just like it was 10 years ago, 50 years ago. God will never get tired of hearing your prayers for forgiveness. God will never get tired of hearing your prayers for your brothers and sisters in sin. He is delighted to hear words of repentance and faith. The second point of application is this. There is no pain in this life that is irredeemable. There is no pain in this life that is irredeemable. You will experience hurt in this life. 
but though the enemy will seek to employ the forces of the world to attack you, though the enemy will seek to divide even within the church, trying to get the people who are closest to you to hurt you the most. The invitation here is that we get to bring all of that pain to the Lord who is faithful to redeem and to heal and to comfort. The world is still under the power of the evil one. We are groaning even now for the revelation of the sons of God. We are groaning for the return of Jesus and for the day that is coming when we will not have to have conversations about pain and suffering and conflict and division. We can have hope that that day is coming and that on that day all will be made right, even as we fail to do so perfectly in this life. And then third, I'll close as John closes. He writes in verse 21, he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's a really interesting way. It's an interesting word of exhortation to close this letter with. He starts with little children. Once again, at the very end of the letter, reaffirming that they are children in the family of God. They are beloved of John and beloved of God. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. You want to know what will slowly but steadily unravel everything about the gospel in your life? Placing your confidence in something other than Jesus. You wanna know what will slowly but steadily unravel everything about the gospel in your life? Placing your confidence in something other than Jesus. And so the question that this brings before us today, the question that John is asking us in this passage is what is your confidence in? John has waxed eloquent on the confidence that we have in Jesus. He has given us great assurance and great confidence. His interest is to build our confidence. And the question that we're left with is this, what is our confidence in? We're in a world in which so many things are vying for our confidence. We're in a moment of uncertainty in our church where security in our church life together is a tempting place to try to put our confidence. We're in a national moment in which security in the right political party, in the right political decisions, in the right strategy for withdrawing from Afghanistan is vying for our confidence. There are so many things in this world that are vying for our confidence, the relationships that we have, the friendships that we wish were better. And so John says of all of those things, which are not bad things to pursue, as Pastor Timothy Keller once pointed out very clearly and helpfully, idolatry isn't always bad things. It's true that John would have been addressing people who built physical idols with their hands, made graven images of other gods and worshiped them. There is no such thing as a good version of that. But to place a good pursuit above your pursuit of God is another way to understand idolatry. To place your confidence in your own ability to fight sin is idolatry. And so John pulls us away and puts our confidence squarely on the shoulders of Christ. The good news, at any time, at any moment, in any day, is that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. 
if God brings by his spirit conviction that you have been placing your confidence elsewhere than Jesus, you know what the good news is? You don't have to flee in shame and try to get that right before bringing yourself back into life and community with God and with others. You get to run towards your community in that moment of realization, asking for people to pray that God might give you life and God is delighted to hear and answer that prayer. Today is the day of salvation. Come to the Lord, flee from idols. Don't give yourselves, little children, to idols. Give yourself instead to the ministry of the risen Christ through the church, which leans into the witness of the spirit and the water and the blood, applying it in ongoing fashion through baptism, through communion, living more and more together into the fullness of life that Jesus came to offer as we yearn for the day when we will fully experience that life without pain or the sting of death. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the Bible and for the encouragement to place our confidence in things that can hold our confidence. Thank you for the clear declaration of what is true about Jesus. And at the heart of that, the truth about your love for us, the love that would send, that would cause you to send your only son to die in our place so that we might have life. Thank you, Lord, for not giving up on us. Thank you for your patience, your ongoing patience with us. And I pray, Lord, that as we become a people increasingly with each passing day who know your grace, who present it to one another, who avail ourselves of it more and more, Lord, that we would be a people filled with more and more joy and peace so that the world might come to know you as well. God, I pray for comfort in the midst of an uncertain situation. I pray for healing and peace, which I know that you are pleased to give. I pray for myself, the elders, the parish leaders, the members of this church, Lord, that you would be near to us as we process and seek to lean more on you than we did yesterday, today. We love you. We need you. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.